Shapeshifters. Shapeshifters on The Money Show. It's not often that you see the chairman of a company become chief executive. It usually happens the other way around sometimes, but it is unusual to see the chair become an executive. It's happened in the case of the education business Advertech, the owners of Crawford College and many other brands. Leslie Marsdorp revealed this week that uh, he is the successor to Frank Thompson, who announced plans last year to step down. Uh, have you actually taken over? Not as yet, uh, David. I'm only uh, taking over officially from Thank you, Frank. The... My name is Bruce, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'll take officially... Frank, you're looking really good for a guy who's just retired. Take officially <laughs> over on the 24th of uh, October. Okay. So I'm in kind of a role of uh, a CEO designate between now and uh, then. How long have you chaired Advertech? Uh, for five years. Okay, so you know it pretty well. So I know the business reasonably well. I mean, obviously, you have a bit of a helicopter view when you're mm. chairman of a uh, company, but first, you know the management team. You're afraid with the strategy because you're part of the development of, of, of the strategy. The board typically, as you know, board typically owns the strategy of a company. So now it's about you know getting my uh, fingers into the weeds and understanding the more detailed operational uh, operate the variables of the company. I want to come. I want to go full circle back to to what you're going to be, what the challenges are of actually running that business. Um, but you're a busy guy. You, you've had a kind of a, a quite a busy twenty years. Um, if, I, if I look back at your history, there's a, a period where you, you you went to jail. So you're an ex-con. <laughs> um, that, that goes back to to the 1980s. I mean, you were you were held in detention without trial. You, I think you were something of an activist. The University of the Western Cape. So it was a very different South Africa then, as you as you know. I was uh, president of the Student Representative Council at University of Western Cape at the time, and as you know, the uh, president. Uh, um, uh, P.W. Botha declared a state of emergency which empowered police to arrest you without trial. So literally they could walk in the studio now and uh, you know, ask for you and your entire team and you could uh, you would leave here. You don't know when you're going to come back. You know, so, uh, and you were in detention for how long? Well, I, I firstly spent three months uh, there during my second year at, at uh, um, university. Uh, the first state of emergency was declared in October 1985 yeah. during my second year. And in my third year I was there for a full year, 12 months. But what was so scary about detention without trial is it was in, in, indeterminate. I mean, the, the, you kind of, I suppose, felt at the time that P.W. Boerter would be in power forever. Um, he'd hold on like Robert Mugabe has, and he could have draconian powers in perpetuity. You had no idea. You'd, oh, absolutely. You never had to appear in court. You never had to be charged with a crime. You could just be held in prison, as you were, and you had no idea when you'd see the light of day again. Absolutely. I think the uncertainty of, of, of detention is probably the, the hardest aspect yeah. of it because, um, you know, if you had a six-month uh, sentence, you, you know, would count the days and you have a vision of, you know, the month and the day when you come out. Uh, there were people who were there much longer uh, yeah. than me, so you know, one year it was uh, you know a long time for me to have been there. But uh, but did you make good friends in prison? I mean, with, with fellow activists, people like Trevor Manuel were there at roughly the same sort of time. I, mean, I think you, you, you might know that uh, the government uh, way back in the sixties actually they they um, when people were arrested for political activity. They threw people in jail with convicts with the intention of demoralizing them Absolutely, and so on. Yeah. But the opposite happened. You know, most people, a lot of people were politicized and conscientized during those periods. And they, they <laughs> well, stopped that. Was, that, that was a failed strategy, back. yes. So, so during our period, you know, we were all together as detainees. So there was a strong sense of camaraderie uh, amongst that uh, group. So, sure, I did build very strong relationships with, with people I, I worked with in the, um, in the late 80s and 90s. People like mm-hmm. Dala Omar, who's passed on. He was in jail there with me. Um, Trevor Manuel was there for, for a long time. Uh, Ibrahim Rasul was our current yeah. ambassador in um, in the United States. Uh, so there's a long list of, of uh, ANC luminaries, uh, if you like, who sure. uh, now occupy senior roles in government. Um, and then you came out of prison. And did you finish your degree? 
Um, yes, I was actually very fortunate. You know, the university. Because you were doing a, time, a BA at the time. Uh, the, a BA degree in economics, uh, mm. uh, exactly. And the university at the time, um, Jace Herval, Professor Herval, has also passed on. Yes. He became rector, and he, he really played a very supportive role uh, uh, at the time in enabling uh, the students to have. Uh, there was, I wasn't the only student, there were many other students in uh, detention. But the university took a case to court, which resulted in us being allowed to study. It was a very sort of perverse uh, um, judgment by the court, but they, if you were registered before you were arrested, the police were under obligation to provide you with the books of the things you had before. So, you know, I didn't have a single lecture, and I was in prison and I had books, and uh, I wrote my exams in prison without any lectures, yeah. Wow. Okay, good. And I, I love learning stuff. It's, it's wonderful to, 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 to fill in some of the dots. Um, you come out and you go into the union movement. Well, at the time, as you know, uh, most political organizations were banned. Uh, you know, South Africa mm. was going through a very repressive era. Trade unions started playing a very, very prominent role. So it was one of the f- sort of uh, platforms for resistance uh, uh, activity. And many activists went into the trade unions. You remember that Jainaidu and others launched Kosatu in 1985. Yeah. So the, 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 the trade unions really became the sort of uh, nerve center of resistance activity because by definition, you can't ban uh, so free association of people in a factory floor, right? So oh, they tried. Um, <laughs> no, sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so I spent a, a number of years in the clothing and textile uh, workers' union, uh, work with people like Johnny Copeland and, and others who I work with now in a different capacity. Yeah, but isn't it funny? I mean, the, I love the fact <laughs> that the trade unionists have become ardent capitalists. Um, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa is going through an interesting period right now at the Marikana Commission, but but he was he, he ran the National Union of Mine Workers, Johnny Copeland and uh, and, the, and your colleagues at HCI, because I think you've served on the board at HCI as well. I'm still a director there. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, the, these these relationships go long and they go deep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, you come out, you, you're a failed trade unionist then. Um, you spent some time in the NC's Economic Policy Unit, and, and that was a powerful unit. I mean, Tita Boweni was in there, Trevor Manuel, Maria Ramos was in there. Yeah, when I left the, uh, the unions, obviously the ANC was unbanned in 1990. Um, I managed to secure a scholarship and I went to the UK, did my master's uh, degree at the uh, University of London. I was actually in the same class as Maria Ramos yeah. and a number of others. Who, who, who uh, got higher marks? <laughs> I'll ask Maria to comment on that. So you did? Uh, okay. No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, so, so when I, c- I came back, you know, the ANC was unbanned and the ANC was building capacity. It was a very, very exciting period. Mm. As a young policymaker, I was in my early my 20s. Uh, it was a very exciting period to be really in the theatre of design of, of, of a new country, a new... But a at new the time, you were, you were all quite socialist in the early days of that. And, and things changed at some point where you decided to, no, actually, we need to be more free market or, uh, sort of orientated. Look, I think many of us who, who came back from sort of uh, academic study and remember the uh, very important influence, actually, on South Africa's transition, also in the thinking, F.W. de Klerk, in fact, is on record as saying that the fall of the Berlin Wall had a major impact on his decision around the uh, 2nd of February uh, speech. But the Mm. collapse of the former socialist countries, no question, affected the sort of overall paradigm within the ANC, even within the SACP uh, and others. Um, I remember 1989, Joe Slovo wrote a paper called How Socialism Failed, um, and he was trying to legitimize his model of socialism, saying that, you know, that was a sort of a dysfunction in the way that socialism was practiced in those countries and so on. There's no question we were influenced by very radical ideas of what was possible to engineer uh, equality. At the time, many of us believed passionately that the entire economic system was not just unjust and unequal, but it was linked to the system of accumulation. So yeah. it was not just apartheid. There was a strong thesis that the system of apartheid was complementary and reinforced by capitalism. So 
uh, mine workers were not just paid, paid poor wages, but you know they lived in atrocious conditions, in hostels, under migrant labor In many system. respects, that hasn't changed in 20 years. I would say that that is unfair comment uh, because uh, I think the conditions has changed quite fundamentally. Tell, that, tell the guys at Marikana that. I mean, there, there, look, there, are, there are incidents look, where people have been, are, are still live in squalor. They're still sure, migrant laborers. Sure. They, 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 they're more indebted perhaps than they ever were before look, because they wanted to participate in the dream. There's no question that, uh, I don't have the number in my head, but it's a good a couple of million additions to the housing stock between 1994 and, and, and today. Uh, the increase in the, sort of in the social wage, if you like, has enabled families to have additional sort of yeah. income. There's a whole range of measures. In 1994, uh, 34, 35% of African households had uh, sustainable supply of electricity. Uh, that number's over 90% today. I mean, well, it's, no, not that long... su- it's not that sustainable. <clears throat> sure. <laughs> okay. I, 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 no, I would the I, sustainable part. The, the, the point I'm trying yeah. to make that it is not fair to say that uh, not much has changed in the mining uh, uh, in terms of the conditions under which people live. Not enough has changed. Not enough has changed. I okay. would concede that. Leslie Marsdorp, tonight's shapeshifter. We, we sort of go through a bit of a history lesson. We're going to skip all the bits where he worked uh, as an advisor to Tito Mwendi at the Department of Labor, and he worked for Jeff Hadebe for a bit uh, at Public Enterprises. Uh, I want to get to his first job. He's been a very busy guy for the last uh, 10 years in particular. His workload has increased dramatically. Um, Celsi, HCI, Pangborn Properties. He's involved in the World Economic Forum. He's a consultant at Deloitte at, at various points. Uh, work as an advisor to Goldman Sachs, Barclays Capital in various forms as well, trans Caledon Tunnel Authority. How does a guy like this now go to an executive job? I'll pick on him in a moment. Shapeshifters on The Money Show. The futurist Graham Codrington, such a show-off. He's on my SMS line this evening telling me that he's had a 3D printer for the past year and you can get them now for less than 10,000 rand. Graham Codrington, we need to talk about what you use your 3D printer for. Um, He's a great speaker, is Graham Codrington. I've seen him on stage many times and he looks to the future and tries to extrapolate possibilities. Well, Leslie Marsdorp's had a very busy 25 years. Um, I want to skip all the sort of um, the stuff where you go to government and and you do your time there, but you effectively go from being a student to an activist, I've got to get this right, to a prisoner uh, for a bit. You come out, uh, you become a student again, become a policy maker. You then become a civil servant. Uh, you then go into the corporate world and somehow you end up in investment banking. How did that happen? As I mentioned earlier on, I uh, studied finance, did a master's degree. I majored in public finance and money and banking. So if you like, I had the theoretical sort of model skills and understanding of the world of uh, finance to, to go there. But, you know, um, high finance is often sort of mystified, uh, Bruce. I think the... Oh, yeah. The, uh, they talk you know, complete rubbish to protect themselves, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I wouldn't go that far. But I think there's often sort of mystery associated with, 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 by the world of uh, finance. But it's, you know, it's uh, some rocket scientists who work there, but it's not rocket science. Okay. And, uh, you know, so I learned investment banking over the last 13 years, and it's been a wonderful experience. Um, and then you, you, you've done lots of things. Let's, let's fast forward um, to your, your, your time in education. How important is education? Because we, we look at the public system, we look at the private system, and there's a chasm between them. Bruce, I mean, I grew up in a, you know, in a home where education was always valued, right? I have six siblings, uh, my parents didn't go to university, and, uh, but from, you know, I had consciousness. I um, uh, knew that at some stage I would go to university because my parents spoke about university to mm-hmm. us, and today, you know, all seven of us are graduates, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a good uh, story. 
Um, I think that, I mean, I've always been, uh, even during the ANC early 90s, when we had uh, developed uh, the alternative economic policies, reconstruction development program, I mean, way back then, I was convinced that the only lasting long-term way to, to transform South Africa and to make South Africa a prosperous economy would be to, to invest significantly in the education uh, and skills aspect uh, of our economy. And we have so, invested. We've invested an extraordinary amount of money. I mean, no. in budgetary terms, as a percentage of the national budget, we're amongst the biggest spenders in the world on education. So I think per capita are way up there relative to other emerging markets, but it's the quality of the spend or the efficiency of the spend mm. which, which is at issue. So firstly, in 1994, government underwent a major restructuring endeavor to combine 11 different education departments into one. So that led to, there was obviously a lot of duplication, replication, wastage of resources in the the education system. There were a lot of mergers that took place of institutions. Universities that were segregated in the past were now combined. Colleges, some colleges were done away with and so on. Some of those experiments uh, were failures. There's no question about it. With hindsight, I think a lot of policymakers would admit that they were were, were failures. I mean, Kata Asmal admitted as much. I exactly, mean, exactly. So, outcomes-based so, so, education set us back it, a long way. It's is, is mm. one of them. So we've gone through sort of a phase of, of significant investment sometimes in the wrong uh, areas. I think, though, that the, the, what's required today is take a fresh look at what works, what can we do differently, and more importantly, what does technology enable us to do now that mm. was not possible before? But you, you're choosing the private school route. Yeah. Um, what is your ambition for Advertech? Advertech um, is in... It's sort of middle elite private schools. You, I sure. mean, Crawford Colleges are, are high-end private schools. I mean, Absolutely. and that's probably the best-known brand uh, in there. Um, you, you're not quite at the Hilton and Bishops uh, and St. John's levels of, of fees, but but you're up there. And, and Curo has come from left of field and seems to have stolen the the more affordable private school lunch on that particular uh, on that sure. particular platform. Let me say something about private education in general first before I come to to Advitech and then say something about Curo afterwards. Firstly, the solution to the education and skills crisis in South Africa does not lie in the private sector, okay? I don't think we should look to the private sector to solve the deep-seated structural problems in public uh, education. At best, we can complement the efforts of uh, government, and we've got a very important role to play uh, going uh, forward. I think there's going to be an exponential growth in uh, private education, mainly driven by technology and the fact that public resources are limited. As we said earlier on, government is already spending significant, something like 255 billion rand out of a budget of 1.3 trillion rand on education. It's a huge percentage. There's no scope to increase that. They're now going to look at the quality of, of, of that spending. So private education... Uh, as an important role to play, I think, to partner with the public sector. And I would hope to deepen those partnerships. It already exists in some forms, but I'm hoping uh, when I start that I'll be able to, to, to increase the, the, those levels. Will you go to lower fee private schools? Absolutely. <clears throat> we have, as a board, already adopted as part of our new strategy to expand our existing offering. As you correctly pointed out, we do own Crawford schools now, Trinity Colleges, Abbott's Colleges, Varsity Colleges. These are premium education products, and we are the market leaders in South yeah. Africa in that yeah, space, sure. right? We will continue to invest there, and we will continue to grow there, and there will be organic growth in that space uh, without a doubt. However, the next phase of investment will be in the low-fee private school space. Well, Dr. Jan Hofmeyer, somehow she's psychic. Um, she's from the Centre for Development and Enterprise. Um, you want to talk precisely about this lower-fee model, uh, Jane. Good evening to you. 
Hello, good evening. Yes, I'm, I'm very keen to probe this a little bit more. You know, the Centre for Development and Enterprise has done groundbreaking research and continues to do research on low-fee private schools because they give educational opportunities where there's no school, a public school or a poor quality one. But for me, the question is, what is low fee? CDE would define that as schools with fees below 12,000 rand a year and lower. So what would be in the mind of Advertech? Uh, thank you, Jan Hofmeyer. Um, are, are you looking to play in that 1,000 rand a month private school space? I think the, the, the first point to make is that uh, as the, the CDE report that Jane makes reference to highlights, there will, there will be, there has been already and there will continue to be new players that will enter the low-fee private school uh, space. There are already a couple of uh, chains that, that, that have emerged in, in that space, charging one, one to one and a half thousand yeah. rand a month. Advitech is unlikely to occupy that space. But between uh, 2,000 rand and 3,000 rand a month, there is a huge market of working families who can afford to pay 2,000 rand a month uh, for quality education. Now, it's important to emphasize, Bruce, that low-fee private school does not mean inferior education. We're looking at it's about a more innovative use of technology to still produce a quality product. I mean, product. you'll be familiar with the Spark Schools concept, and they're using Absolutely. technology very effectively. Absolutely. Sparks is a very good example of Is that your first acquisition? <laughs> I know, I know the, the founder of Spark School uh, very Stacey well. Brewer, Stacey yeah. Brewer, yeah. I, I visited the, the institution, and it's a very well run one. Can learn a lot from, from mm. what they've pioneered. But the, but the future of education is exciting, and I think it's pretty bright in terms of certainly on the fee paying side. Absolutely, I am convinced that uh, we, as a company, Advitech, in five or ten years, if you ask me to imagine the future, we can operate in different geographies uh, throughout Africa. You know the Africa growth mm. uh, story. Many of these economies are growing at 5, 6, 7, some of them 8%. There's a rapid uh, growth of people being propelled into the middle class. More and more people can afford to, to send the kids to private schools. And more importantly, a lot of the public sector, a lot of the governments in these countries are embracing the private sectors. Um, in places like Ghana, for, for example, uh, there's been an exponential growth of, of private education. Nigeria, it's beginning to happen as well, Kenya and so on. Leslie Marswell, I look forward to chatting more into the future. I wish you luck in the new job at Advertech. Thank you so much. And, uh, and, and taking up the cudgels for education. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for the well Tonight's Shapeshifter, Leslie Marsdorp.